if I remember the statistics in the UK, 40% of users just make it to the end of the month. They don't have extra savings at the end of each month. That's a lot of people that really are pressed financially and with high inflation, high energy bills, you know, it, it's a problem. So if we can give some people more clarity in how they're spending, and then in time, we can work with the banks to recommend spend money here, not here. Maybe there's a reward here and you could clearly identify the transactions, spot that transaction, give a cash back or some sort of incentive. Those are additional use cases as well as ESG tag. You know, you're spending so much money on these merchants are actually better merchants for the environment. You may want to shift your spend a little bit over here. So there's a lot of things you could do once you have that clarity of transactions, a lot of insights, and a lot of nudging that you can do with your consumers afterwards. Welcome to Purpose Driven Fintech. I'm your host, Monica Millares. I interview fintech founders, product leaders, and experts to uncover their stories, challenges, and lessons learned in building products with impact. To win the battle with financial stress and have social impact, we need to build products that solve real customer needs in a differentiated manner. Today, I speak with Ken Hart, CEO and founder at Snowdrop Solutions, a data enrichment fintech. We talk about the importance of clarity and transparency of transactions in financial services, focusing on solving everyday problems, the need for a user-centric approach using personalized spending insights and recommendations, the benefits of autonomy in building a company to have meaningful impact on users' lives, and the importance of creating a culture that builds challengers, not excellent sheep. Hi, Ken. How are you today? It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Monica. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because like you and I had a chat, Money 2020, then we had a, a separate catch-up and we were talking about like, hey, thinking differently, how Snowdrop is different in terms of you're not busy funded, which that gives you a competitive advantage in terms of how you do things, focusing on what you call the toothbrush products, which I love. So it's a very unique conversation. So really looking forward to it. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. So maybe a little context, because, you know, I'm not a dentist and we don't sell <laughs> dental floss and toothpaste, right? So Snowdrop's been around a little bit about the company. We're based in the UK. We've been around for 10 years and we work primarily, or, or the original premise of the company was to work closely with the Google Maps team. So we would resell Google Maps and develop around Google Maps. And we did that in the real estate and then what we're trying to do is really focus on like a B2B to C approach. And we would give the best location intelligence, location and rich data to say a large real estate company so they could make it more clear and intuitive Would people go to, you know, a website for or a real estate portal, where should I live? Why the toothbrush metaphor? Because what we did was we really try and do things when you're dealing with the consumers, you know, young, old. Male, female, you want to deal with problems that people have every day. We call it like a toothbrush, right? Hopefully everyone listening to this podcast brushes their teeth every, every day, day, right? Yeah. So it's not just a small amount of people once in a while. We're trying to tackle problems that are daily problems for the mass of consumers. That's hence the term of toothbrush approach. Yeah. And that is a very good, even like term, you know, because it's like day-to-day -day use, all of the fintechs, B2C fintechs, we're like, how do we become a day-to-day -day product? And then mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think we can have like very interesting conversations. 
But before we go into the detail of it, just for everyone to get a feel of who you are and learn a little bit about your mindset, I'll just ask you a few questions on Ken as such. So let's start with, what is your definition of success? Frankly, it's a good balance with my family. And I have four daughters. They're getting increasingly getting old. They're getting ready to go off some of them to university. So I would really say it's success is having something that good balance and enjoying people you work with. Obviously, when you do something that's impactful, you want to have a degree of autonomy in what you do. And that's why I think, you know, that balance and autonomy is my definition of success. It's not you've hit a certain milestone. It used to be like that, but then you'd hit those milestones and things don't really change. You're like, you know what? Hitting a certain milestone is important. That's great. But it's not my definition of success. It's really enjoying the people you work with and having a time to have that balanced life. Yes. Yes, I agree with you. Because the people that you work with make a massive difference. We work like most of the yeah. time, right? So Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, you are founder, CEO. You've run this company for many years. What's your biggest productivity habit? Ooh, I will say there's two things that at least they work really well for me. One is what I call the walk and talk. And by the way, this is a productivity hack but I would argue a good relationship hack or good friends and family hack, whatever you want to apply to. So walk and talk for me is, you know, sometimes if something is going not according to plan, if someone is doing something that you're not sure what, what's going on, a walk and a talk in the park or something like that can be really useful. So it's just a good chance to get to know someone. So rather than sitting down, maybe face to face, and having a coffee, that could be useful too. My personal productivity hack, if you will, is to go for a walk in the park. We have the offices uh, right near uh, beautiful parks in London. We'll go for a walk and a talk and say, hey, what were you thinking? What happened though? That's, that's a big one for me. The second one, I guess, is sometimes there's times you just got to focus, you know, get into the flow and get things done. And I find listening to music, certain types of music is really good and it enables me to, to really zoom in on what I need to get done and, 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 and produce things well. Those are cool. my two bits. Yes, I like that. It's focus and then basically have the difficult conversations in a safe, relaxed environment that it's walking. It's not a confrontational. It's a... Yeah, a walk. Walk. I've never heard... Walk. I, yeah, I don't want to... You know, it, it's not necessarily a bad moment to have a no. walk and talk, but sometimes like, hey, you're not sure what's going on or that person's not sure what's going on or you're worried maybe they're upset or something or, or you're, you know, a walk and a talk is always a good thing. Cool. I like that. I used to have a manager back in the UK that exactly at some point we would be like, Hey, we had meetings and it was like, shall we go for a walk? It's like, I can bring my notebook and take notes as we walk, which was cool. Okay. So then let's get into the conversation as such. And I want to start with purpose. Like what's the story behind Snowdrop? Like why? What motivated you to say, hey, I'm going to start this tech company and then continue and not only motivated to start, but then motivated to keep going? Remember I talked about autonomy? Well, mm. let me give you a bit of a story from around 2006, 2007. I was at Yahoo, so I'd worked for some really big companies in my time. And me and two or three others were brought into a very important meeting with a senior person running Yahoo Europe. And that person was looking at their BlackBerry at the time and said, what is this whole iPhone app thing? I don't get it. 
And we're all sitting around explaining to the person, well, right now, this is a new format. You know, it's a new user experience. And people are used to using their BlackBerry to type just email, but an app is really much more engaging way to, you know, to, to deal with content, not just emails, but any sort of content. The executive at the time said, well, how much advertising money are we making in in-app advertising today? And the answer is very little because they've just started. And we said, look, first go the eyeballs. The consumers go first to the apps and two or three years later, the advertising money eventually follows the eyeballs. To which the exact said, well, I won't be here in two years. So let's shut down the mobile business. So that experience, <laughs> me, you know, was a really painful experience, but it, it sort of opened my eyes to how big companies often think, often very short term, this quarter, next quarter, end of the year, and not really a lot of thought beyond that. So later on, I had the opportunity to create a company and it's always fearful. I remember again, mm. sitting at the kitchen table you know, buying the domain and stuff like that. And, you know, it, you have to sort of feel what's going through your emotions there. And I was like, what am I afraid about? This is, this is not that hard. But what I've loved about the experience, what prompted me to, to create Snowdrop was to do something with a group of people that I truly enjoyed and having a bit of that long-term ability to carry something through, right? Not because in VC is telling me to do it or some guy in corporate headquarters in California needs to do it, right? To do the right thing, the right way, the right time, you need to have autonomy to do it. And that was why I wanted to create a company. Why did we pick Snowdrop and why did we pick the field that we work in as a second answer your yeah. question? And, you know, something that I thought was really compelling when I was a little kid, this great story of Dr. John Snow who you may or may not know, in 18, I think it was 1854, there was an epidemic in London, in Soho. It yep. was a cholera epidemic and something like several hundred people died in a few days. And they went to the authorities, the people living in Soho, and they said, you need to do something. And the authorities said, it's bad ear, miasma. We can't do anything. Oh. And a doctor who lived in London at the time, young doctor, Dr. John Snow said, hmm, and he sat there one night and he drew up a little map of the neighborhood and he drew a little black line where all the dead people lived. And then he said, where's the local source of water? And he drew that and it happened to be right in the middle. And then he immediately ran to, I think it was a local priest and they said, oh my goodness. And they disconnected the pumps from the well to end the epidemic. This before microscopes, this before they understood what bacteria was. So what I loved about that story and why we called the company Snowdrop after Dr. John Snow was that sometimes location information or a map is so intuitive, you just, there's an immediately call to action. And so the whole idea that you can use mapping experience and give clarity to consumers was really the basis of why we created the company Snowdrop, where it certainly named it after Dr. John Snow, mm -hmm. who's buried in the old Brompton Cemetery now in London. Anyway, cool. that's a little long-winded yeah. story about why create a company, why uh, we call yeah. it Snowdrop. Yeah, and I think we can go deeper into both. But I'll start with the snowdrop as such. I love I, I love the inspiration of the name. Can you explain to us, like, what exactly do you do as a company when it comes to providing maps and how does that relate to customers and proper practical interfaces? Like, what do you guys do? 
Sure, sure. So what we do is we have a lot of mapping expertise, location expertise, and we believe that there's moments in the consumer's lives, like where should I buy this apartment? Where should I live? Where should my commute be? Uh, where should I go on holidays? What does that look like? Or what does this bank spend that when I'm looking at my bank bill, right? So the whole idea is there's moments in people's lives where there's a lack of clarity. There's a lack of transparency. And if you could just make sense of it quickly and intuitively, we believe often on the map, they just get it. People don't need to overthink things. They know exactly, oh, that's a six minute walk from that hotel to the British Museum. Great. I'll book it now. Or, oh, that's where I went for lunch last week. I recognize that transaction. That's the clean name. That's the logo. I'm not freaking out thinking about it and hacked. There are all these moments that we try and focus on where we use location-enhanced data enrichment to really create that clarity and that intuitive user experience. That's our mission out there. That's our North Star. Obviously, that works in real estate, travel, financial services, around payments and transactions and, you know, figuring out where I should go on holidays or booking a hotel. But we believe that in time, it could expand to other areas as well. So it's yeah. about adding clarity so people have an intuitive understanding of what they're doing. Thank you. Can you expand on financial services as such? What are the use cases? Because I think some of the apps, let's say, like in the big fintechs, new banks, like you have your trans, you go into the app and then you see the transaction. Some of them do display a map, others don't display a map. What's the use case for a fintech? You know, it, it's funny, Monica, when we started doing this, gosh, I want to say like five, six years ago, I went to a couple of meetings in Old Street, which was part of East London. And I met a company and I went in this almost like a used pet shop. It was this rundown little, little office. And it had uh, some guys sitting around and said, we're going to build a bank. I was like, really? You can do that? And I was very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. So Marco, the guy from Google and myself, were talking to this company that at the time was calling itself Mondo. And they were saying, yeah, we're going to create a bank where we want to sort of create a radical new user experience. In fact, we want to be so good that we never have to invest in a cold center. And I said, what do you mean? I said, yeah, people don't understand their transactions. We're going to do it differently. We want to be a mobile only bank that are really transparent, a great user experience. Mondo, for those who are not sure or never heard of Mondo, went on to change their name to Monzo. And really, we gave them the Google Maps and helped them out and build that initial transaction, which took off. Starling called us right afterwards and Bonin said, I'd like that too. Then Moniz, et cetera, et cetera. And what we saw, there was a gap between with these challenger banks who are out there really trying to differentiate and do things in a brand new way and the more traditional banks. So I remember going to a couple of the traditional banks saying, what do you think about this? And the traditional banks were like, it's just pretty. It's not meaningful. <laughs> Literally. It doesn't matter. It's just pretty. Or a French bank said, oh, French users, they don't want that. Well, like, why? They're not confused over their transactions? Oh, they can't be bothered. So what we were seeing is the traditional bank, there was about a year or two gap between the challenger banks for launching this. By the way, not just in the UK, you know, banks like N26 in Germany or Rebellion in Spain, Nikel in France. And then finally, the more traditional banks were like, you know what? This is starting to eat into our business. You're taking away very valuable users that if they migrate from traditional bank to these new banks, we're going to lose a lot of lifetime value of these customers when they, you know, get better jobs and start applying yeah. for mortgages, they won't be turning to us to traditional bank. 
they, there's a risk they'll be turning to the neobanks or these challenger banks. So that's been our experience where we see the same problems, by the way, taking place in other parts of the world, you know, Southeast Asia, Latin America, et cetera. The one thing that I would mention is that Google recently did a research with a company, I think it's called Oxford, maybe reporting or Oxford business reports. Anyway, they asked a bunch of people around the world, where do you see the use of location and maps? In the UK, mm-hmm. it was the, the second most popular answer was to clean up banking transactions. The oh, wow. From this very niche little thing a couple of years ago, only challenger banks are going to go to like mainstream people expect this now, right? Yeah, that I couldn't expect that when you go, and especially someone like Google, like when Google goes and asks consumers, where would you like to see basically location and rich data? That consumers come back and say, in my bank. In my banking transactions. Yeah. It should be there now. And so, but that's a big shift. And that's not been the same in other markets. We see it initially in a handful of European markets. But if, you know, for other people, it's still, oh, it's just a nice to have. It's pretty. It doesn't really impact the business. The statistics speak otherwise, right? We've seen the number of calls to call centers dramatically decrease. The amount of time that people have in the call centers not to deal with confusing transactions, but to upsell new products for the banks, increases app rating. Hansetic Bank went from 4.3 to 4.6 overnight by launching some of this rich data services. So there's some real business benefits to, frankly, giving your consumers a good experience. Yes, that is very good to hear because if you were to ask me in a very critical manner, hey, Monica, the map in the app. I got to be like, that's a vitamin, not a painkiller. But actually, there are very specific use cases where, like you've, you've mentioned before, it's like we are removing anxiety from customers in very specific touch points. And in that case, it's definitely a painkiller. And, and like you say, like data is showing that there's a business case behind it. Yeah. Just think about, you know, in the UK, about 11% of all transactions take place outside of the UK. In Luxembourg, it's 43%. Now, I don't know Funland poor Singapore, but you would imagine a large number of those transactions are not on the domestic market. And a lot of those transactions are, I don't know the merchant. I don't remember where I was. I don't recognize those brands. I'm changing my spending habits, maybe to different currency as well. So there's a lot of extra confusion. You would know this better than anyone over there at BigPay, right? About when people travel abroad, Looking at a map is just one piece of the puzzle, but it definitely can add value and really, it removes the anxiety that consumers have if they, if they don't remember where that transaction took place. Yes. It's a real green point. It, it is because then it's, it's not just the map. It is like you said, the name, right? It's like the name, the map from memory, you also offer it like the logos. So it helps me remember what did I do yeah. with that transaction or identify transactions that I'm like, oh, I don't remember if I did that. Like it happened to me recently that I was, I was traveling, went to, went to Amsterdam and I came back and I was like, I had a Malaysian domestic transaction a few days after. And I'm like, I don't, I genuinely don't remember what I did. (laughs) That's it. It's like, yeah, but then it's, it's, yeah, the, the, and you, in this, in my case, the amount was very low. So I'm like, I'm not even going to be bothered to go into you know, raising a dispute is the other. But sometimes you're like, but it's still in the back of my head. I'm like, 
what was that transaction? And because then the second thing that comes to my mind is I have not identified the transaction. I'm like, is this a potential fraud? You know, attempt that it's like we do the first one, it goes through, and then a few weeks later we do a bigger one. So that's that's what goes through my mind as a product person. Maybe yeah. that was a and, and that's literally what goes through your mind as a consumer as well. And, you know, if you think about typical example, I once, you know, my wife took the kids out for an Italian restaurant and it came back from the statement, Gromecca. She was like, oh my God, I've never been a Gromecca in my life. I've been hacked. Gromecca is the name of the company that owns the franchise for the Mamma Mia pizza chain where we happen to be, right? So. It's like Inditex is the corporate entity, Zara, Weish, you know, they're Massimo Dutti, et cetera, maybe the brand, right? So all those sort of examples where people fall up and they go, don't understand this transaction, all that anxiety, it's not just the math. It's the clean name, right name, clean name, a logo. And then if you're still not sure, see it on that map. A lot of other people out there do just categorizations, shopping, and you know, to know that Gromeka was a restaurant would not have helped me or would not have helped my wife in that, in that case. So categorization alone, it's nice, but you really need the whole solution of location and hand weedling transaction bridges to make sense of it all. And then you can also do spending insights. Here's where Brits go when they go travel abroad, or here's where people go when they go to Kuala Lumpur, right? Or whatever it may be. You can do a yeah. lot more when you have that level of detail. Yes. And then just like brainstorming, putting this out there, mm -hmm. like right now, of course, across the world, we're all a little bit tight when it comes to money, like the cost of living, it's just like going to the roof. So it's actually like, yeah, maybe in the past we were a little bit more lenient when you were like, ah, I don't know what it is. And then you just like forget. But I think right now it's every, like, like Tesco, every little helps, right? So mm -hmm. even if you are, if you are, unsure of what the transaction is. And then you have a reminder of, ah, oh, yeah, actually, yes, I saw the map. Ah, yeah, now I know. That helps to our peace of mind because like financial stress is a real thing. It definitely is. I think if I remember the statistics in the four is something like in the UK, 40% of users, you know, just make it to the end of the month, right? They don't have extra savings at the end of each month. That's a lot of people that really oppressed financially and with high inflation, high energy bills, you know, it, it's a problem. So if we can give some people more clarity in how they're spending, and then in time, we can work with the banks to recommend spend money here, not here. Maybe there's a reward here and you could clearly identify the transactions, bought that transaction, give a cash back or some sort of incentive. Those are additional use cases as well as stuff like ESG tag. You know, you're spending so much money on these merchants with these merchants are actually better merchants for the environment. You may want to shift your spend a little bit over here. So there's a lot of things you could do once you have that clarity of transactions, a lot of insights and a lot of nudging that you can do with your consumers afterwards. I like that because now you're just exactly, you had the, the, your core proposition and then now it's like, okay, we've, we've nailed the core proposition. Now let's see how is it that we can collaborate with the banks fintechs uh, to come up with ideas on how we can not enrich the data, but enrich customers' experience such that they have better relationship with money, better habits as such. 
Yeah. And some banks, you know, are doing a great job of it. Uh, but I think sometimes you need to look outside the banking sector to really emulate the best experiences, right? So if I said today, you're going to grab an Uber to go from point A to point B, you would expect to be able to see that car showing up an estimated time of while to pick you up, right? That experience is the standard expected experience now, right? That's a great example of if you're going to be traveling in the future, you want to get rewards and loyalty programs where you're going, you want to get recommendations where to stay. There's a lot of things that banks can do to really enhance the user experience rather than just, you know, try and, and give just a logo or something like that. The other thing that I just would mention briefly, Monica, is a lot of banks still have what I would say a, a do-it-yourself mentality. They want to build everything from A to Z themselves. One of the things that we've also done to our partnerships with Visa and Google and elsewhere is really make it easier, both in terms of technology, but commercially and legally, to just take a very simple API key off the shelf, say from us or Google or Visa, plug it in and go. So we've had customers that instead of trying to build the stuff all themselves from scratch, they've actually implemented it a weekend. And that covers 200 million points of interest in the world, millions of logos, 95% accuracy rates. So yes, some banks will always have a default, I'll build everything myself. That's also a, a, a something that could be best applied or learned from elsewhere. You don't need to build everything yourself, right? You can really take something off the shelf that's really good and proven. Uh, rather than try and manage logos or manage. Yes. And I love now that you're getting more into the product side of the conversation because exactly it may seem that, oh, it's, it's, yeah, we'll just manage our names and our logos. That is not the area of expertise of a bank, A. And then B, it is complex. C, once you roll it out, whatever you build, it will be buggy and you have to maintain it. So the how it helps you achieve your mission to help people with their financial services is basically, if I work with someone like you, then I can ensure that that part of the process is sorted while I use the rest of my resources to focus on my core functionality. That it's, hey, how do we help customers have better uh, financial lives, basically? Yeah, very much so. So I'll give an example of a very large bank in Southern Europe to try to build this themselves. They spend millions of dollars on software licenses and they have about a 75% match rate, right? That means one out of every four transactions, they get rolled and they're spending literally millions to try and do this. Ooh. Whereas, you know, why? You know, you can't get the stuff off the shelf and just go and it takes a few days to set up. But yeah. hey, there's some of those big banks have that sort of established mindset that need to build everything themselves. I think over time, they'll recognize that's not really the best use of their time and money. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because it's, it's not the core functionality. Talking about mindset, um, mm. I want to expand on product mindset as such and what you talked about autonomy. So how has autonomy helped you build the product that you wanted to build? It's a, it's a good question. I have a couple of stories coming to mind. I'm not sure I can share them all, but <laughs> look, we've been, we've been a, an independent company for 10 years since our inception, no VCs, no private equity, nothing at all. And we've been profitable all that time, you know, through thick and thin, we've always managed to accrue a little bit of uh, retained earnings. When you have that sort of autonomy, you can do things that take 
a long time. We're working with projects now that we started talking about banks literally four years ago. You know, there was an interest, they disappeared, people changed, they come back, or we'll work on a new region or a new product that will take years to develop. And it's not because the technology isn't good. The technology is constantly improving and, and getting an improvement in leaps and bounds. It's just the banking sector is a slow moving sector in general. Mm. And so if you're not able to sort of, you know, do something over a long period of time, like three or four years, you're not often going to be given that opportunity under short-term pressures. Again, think of the story when I was at Yahoo, right? If I don't, I'm not going to be here in two years. What's the point? The other thing is realistic expectations. You know, before I created the company, I went to another company and, and we had to go from zero to 10 million to a hundred million in, you know, three years of new product revenues. And it was like, that's not realistic. And the reason was they had all these other investments that were going to probably not be successful. So our investment had to cover all those other losses. So again, that's making the DC or the private equity company balance their portfolio. It's not necessarily the best thing for your company or your product proposition or your team, right? So it's getting that balance, long-term autonomy, to able to do the right thing in a realistic period of time, right? So that's been really important. And then it's getting the right people who can really think very, very, very clearly, is this the thing that's going to move the needle? Are we best positioned to do this? It may not be the biggest addressable market out there, but it needs to adhere to, is it a real problem in people's daily lives that we can probably be the best, the number one or two out there in terms of fixing this problem? The last thing I'll talk about is that just a metaphor that I have in mind, Monica, is like, you know, zippers. You know, I often yeah. say the problem is right between your legs and people go, what? I'm like, look down at your, at your pants or your jacket. There's a Japanese company called Wally KK. They make zippers. That's all they do. But they're really, really, really good at it, right? They don't make clothing. They make zippers. So if you're a clothing manufacturer, you'll probably use YKK zippers as part of the, the thing. So I believe in the fintech space or financial services space, there's a role for these very specialized, dedicated companies that just do one or two things really, really, really well. well. Yes. And I have a follow-up question to that because... It seems easy, but it's difficult, right? Just to say, yes, we're going to be the best in this thing that is going to be a day-to-day -day use. But then when you pose that challenge to a management team working in a fintech, you're like, oh, how do we go about it, right? <laughs> What could be your advice for product teams and leadership teams that are trying to answer that question? I can only tell you what we've done. And yeah. so I, I can't, I don't know if this is a advice that's applicable elsewhere, but I would start by saying no. So first thing is, you, you know, think of like a big block of marble. And if you're going to be Michelangelo, you're going to be creating David out of that. The first thing you'd be doing with your hammer and chisel saying, no, 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 knocking things off. Not us, not us, not our core expertise, not addressable for us. And then you're going to get to start to see a shape. And then two or three people around a table, because it's not a committee here. It's two or three no. people are going to say, okay, that's, this is now going to strike a shape. So I would start by saying no to a lot of things because it's, it's easy. And I've made those mistakes too, to try and do too many things or too many disparate things at the same time. Really deal 
emboldened to say, no, 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 we're just going to do a few things well. Yeah, I like that. And that comes back to your productivity uh, habit of focusing. Or combine that with walk and talks, right? But what I've had is I've been fortunate that I've worked with people that I've known for 30 years. So we have some great people in the company, directly in the company or advisors. And there's a couple of moments where you need to be challenged, product, leadership, finance, whatever. And a lot of those conversations like, no, we're not going to do that. Here's why. And it really makes you sharpen your argument. Like I said, that hammer and chisel knocking things off is a very useful way to start. I like that. I like that as a framework to take away from this conversation to be like, hey, it's no just for the sake of saying no. Because like there's a lot of narrative around. And like if you look at product, product leaders, product culture, oh, you have to learn to say no. But it's no, it's not learning to say no for the sake of saying no. It's more of a strategically, we are not that. We are not positioned to be the best here. We, it's, it's kind of defining who you are not to define who you are getting philosophical, but yeah. You know, my, my kids are getting ready for a university. And part of the thing that I would say is the experience is, is hard. There's so many choices, so many things you could do. And it's very competitive out there, right? So yes. my first advice to any parent or any child preparing to go to, you know, further their education is figure out not what you want to do, figure out what you don't want to do. Start by saying no. Like I said to my daughter, do you, do you want to do this? And she's like, no, do you want to do this? No. And so it helps you focus a little bit more. Then you can start to focus in and figure out what's best for you in terms of your skills, what's best for you in terms of your passion in life uh, and being realistic as well, what you can actually achieve. It's better to be good at one or two things that's a small market that you can really carve out and do that incredibly well than to come to be number eight or nine you know, in a huge market, in my opinion, mm. it's more to be the leader in something small than not really a, an important player in a, in a bigger overall market. Yeah. That, that's good. Good advice for anyone thinking of life changes, career changes, getting into uni or because like many people now in their late twenties, late thirties, mid forties, they're like, I want to change. A lot of people are going through what I call either the quarter of a life crisis or the midlife crisis. And then the process is similar, right? <laughs> it's yeah. Defining who you want to be next. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's probably a bit of this element of like you do what you're expected to do, you know, what you think make your parents proud of you or your peers proud of you. But you get a point in your life. I don't know when that point is. Maybe often traditionally it's in your little later on, not early twenties or mid twenties, but a little later on, we're like, you know, I've achieved this. Now I want to do something that's more meaningful to me. And, um, the advice that I would have to anyone, let's say early twenties to early thirties, isn't really to worry too much about how, what they make it's, or, or even, you know, their title or anything like that. It's about, are you learning? Are you really excluding things in your lives? You know, by the way, say the same thing about dating people, right? Mm. If you know that person is not for you, move on, move right? On. You know, you won't be with the, the right person, right? So approach work the same way. I'm learning a lot. I'm getting a lot out of this. Is this something that, that I'm actually getting fulfillment from or enjoyment from or a good life skill that I can then use later on in life? So if you know it's not for you, move on, you know, don't waste yeah. your time. Yeah. At the same time. Yes, I love the, I love the exactly move on, but at the same time. 
I would say for anyone listening, listening, don't move on like too fast. Like genuinely sit down and be like, hey, is this me being emotional? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. Or just like sometimes you just have to push through and be resilient. And it's like, learn, 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 then move on. It's different approaches, right? Yeah, don't just change for the change sake. No. Figure out why, what's missing, why this is not for you and gravitate for what you really do want instead, right? Yes, yes. So we're talking a lot about people and careers, kind of. We, we ended up in this conversation, mm -hmm. right? So building a company is complex and we have like any discipline within any company will be like complex and difficult, but... <laughs> I think the most difficult part of building a company and the most beautiful part as well is people. So people, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to bring the best out of people when we have a lot of pressure. How, how did you do that? Like what's your leadership style such that you bring the best out of people? You keep them in a high performance place. And do it in the long term, right? Because like, otherwise it's easy to get into, oh, I'm done, I'm burned out, bye-bye. Well, that's a hard question. It's a good question. I don't know if I have any secrets to share. I can, I can only just say, we try and create a culture. So how do people work together? There's processes and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. But I think what's more important, anytime when we interview people, both from the candidate looking to join Snowdrop and for us looking to hire them, I really think there's two things. The questions that we're often asked is, What's the culture like at Snowdrop? And the question we have for that candidate is, what's your attitude? Like, like what are you going to be like to work with this if you join this team, right? And we try and create a culture that is fairly transparent, fairly flat. You know, everyone has the right to be what we call a challenger. Like, mm. I'm not sure I agree. What about this? And come with an alternative idea. Do it in a respectful way, right? So we try and not fire what I would describe as excellent sheep. I want people who can challenge and say, no, let's do it this way instead, right? So uh, being the brightest person in the room or the best in academics or having so many titles, I'd rather people have more scars than medals, if that makes sense. And maybe that's I because, love that. You know, in Spain, where I spent a lot of time, it's something called titulitis. We're like, look at all my medals. They've never done anything, but it's all medals and honors and certificates. I'd much rather for people who have screwed up, made mistakes, and had the emotional awareness and their emotional intelligence to learn from it and say, oh, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I, I, I got that scar already. So it's a culture where people can challenge each other and then support each other. We're not a big company, right? We're roughly, you know, 30 people or so. So it's relatively easy to do something at a company in that size. I think if you're a company that's growing very quickly, you have to also be careful not to hire too many people that you're, that impacts the overall culture. That's mm. something that we're extremely careful about. So, you know, we'll pause after a month or after two, three months of someone joining and be like, is this person really the right fit? Yes. I really like that. Especially you, have to be, you have to be pretty. Brutal, I guess, is the word sometimes about that. It doesn't always work out. I Yes. Yes. I think it's a culture fit is way more important than you are the most qualified person to do the job, but not the right Very culture. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation. Just to wrap up, if you were to change one thing in fintech, 
that could make the lives of customers, employees, and shareholders better? What could you change? Uh, just one thing. That's a hard one, Monica. Nothing what? I needed. No, I know. Money. I know. It's the most difficult question ever. That's one. That's- one thing I would change is to really think about the consumer experience. People, okay. people are like, oh, we don't want to onboard another vendor or procurement process takes us time or we're going to build it ourselves. It's like they really often don't hear or think or consider the user experience. There's a lot of lip service, but it's not really thought through. And I would argue the beauty of some of these, you know, challenger banks when they started, they really, really, really do care about the consumer experience, like deeply care about it. And that really makes a difference. So if there's one thing I would suggest is because there's so much inertia in what we do, you know, people don't change their banks that frequently that maybe you don't need to think about the consumer experience that much, but that would be something that I would really advocate that people think about. Think about the long-term value of a customer that you captured 18 and getting them all the way through to their 88, right? Think about their different stages in life and thinking about making sure they have a great experience with you. Because mm-hmm. thinking great experience, often they don't go together, right? Yeah, it's like, that's why challengers exist, right? And the key word that caught my attention as you were talking was, you were saying like the initial challenger banks, they genuinely cared about user experience, customer experience as such. And I think if we were to inject a little bit about caring about customers as humans, genuinely across fintechs and, and the banks, like across the industry, that, that requires a mindset shift and a culture shift. It's not just a process shift. But yeah, I, think, I, think, I think we could, we could have more impact. There's, a, you know, I'm not the first person who said I won't be the last, but we're still at the early, early, early days of all this, right? So we have a long road ahead of us, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of change. So you know, stay tuned, that's what I could say. This It's going to be accelerating over the next couple of years, right? And think about what people really want. Uh, you know, I need a PFM. No one needs a personal finance manager. Only 3 to 5% of the people use it once a month, right? You're not solving the problem for all your consumers. You're just picking the box. You're being another excellent sheet. What we need to think about is giving the consumers the real experiences that makes them manage their lives more meaningfully, right? Help them over those different stages of their life. Don't just tick a box. That would be my suggestion. That's a beautiful message to end. Where can we find you and Snowdrop? You can always find us at snowdropsolutions.co.uk. Big presence, I guess, on LinkedIn. And I'll be traveling around, coming to a, an event, I hope, near you. But I'm always keen to reach out. Uh, we'll be doing a couple of things for Google and Visa over there. I hope to bump into you again soon. Cool. Awesome. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, everyone. See you next Monica, week. A real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Likewise. Thank you, Ken.